Good to be with you. Uh, pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate you having me up here today. That's too kind a uh, introduction, and it's hard enough to follow Walt. Uh, it's hard enough to follow a testimony like that. I uh, really appreciate that testimony. Thanks very much for that. I want to speak to you on obedience. It's something that uh, I have thought a lot about for the last decade, something that's been on my mind, something I challenge in my own life a great deal. And something I think in this period of time is that we better be very serious about thinking about where we are with that. Recently, uh, <clears throat> I've had three occurrences which have, um, to me, represent the malady that we're suffering in Christendom today. Let me just tell you about them. I have a good buddy that's a businessman in Atlanta who, on a trip, tragically had his wife and one of his sons killed in a car accident, and he and his other son survived. And, and he and I were mutually in business around each other, not together, but around each other. And um, I watched him work his way out of the morning of that loss and his relationship to God, only to find another woman to marry and I remember his exultation when he found the woman and how excited he was that God had brought this woman back into his life. And then he married her, only to find a few years later that this was not a very easy woman to live with. And I remember having lunches with him and talking to him at length and trying to encourage him to get through some of these things. Let me not describe the problems she had. That's not, not the issue. Let me just uh, say that there, there was some struggle there. I remember having a meal with him about a year and a half ago, and that is, it was starting to get very serious and was starting to ask me how he should deal with this situation. And we reviewed the scriptures and where he was on the issue, only to find a year later that he had decided that he must divorce her. I remember him having the meal with him to ask him how that was and how he came to that conclusion that he should be divorcing her. Now, I won't go through it, but let me assure you, because we had gone through so many things on the scriptures, the minute I even raised the question of how are you getting where you are, he immediately ripped into low gear, threw himself on his defenses, and told me that I better not be judging him. That in his many hours of prayer about the issue, that he was fully convinced that God had told him to disobey, to restrict it. He told him to divorce his wife, that irrespective of what the scripture had said, he had a clear word from God that he was to divorce her. That's a hard one. He's a friend of mine. And a newspaper recently, second story, a newspaper recently, uh, a clergy, let me not name the, the uh, denomination that's of no interest, uh, this clergy is in the business of putting homosexuals into the pastorate. And they were interviewing him in the newspaper. I thought it was a very intriguing interview because the interviewer knew enough of the Bible to say, but doesn't the Bible say that a homosexual does not belong in the clergy? They knew that enough to ask that question, of which the guy responded, yes, I know that's what the Bible says, but, I'm line the word but, but this person has so much to offer to the church, how can we deny him? That's an interesting piece of logic. Third story. I have a, a dear friend. I've been around their marriage for years. And she went sideways on him. 
decided that she, she had been abused as a young woman and that had never been put to bed and in the process of that abuse that she was now trying to face it as she was facing cancer and that she was not thinking she was getting enough sympathy out of her husband for her tormented victim state of affairs and decided that uh, he was a surrogate abuser which absolutely overwhelms me because he didn't agree with her he is now the abuser by modern Christian psychology that he was the abuser and that she basically decided that she needed to separate from him and go through the legal process of separation. And irrespective of the fact that the scriptures clearly state that you're not to bring a lawsuit against another brother, she decided that she needed to take it into the court of law. And as we were talking to her, challenging her, pleading with her not to get into that environment, she said, God has told me that he can settle it through the courts. What's going on? Why are we in a state of affairs that obedience to the scripture or to what God has taught us is secondary to my opinion or my indigestion or what my culture is teaching me? What is the anchor? Is the anchor how I feel about it or what my discomfort level is? Have we arrived at a state of affairs that obedience, therefore, must always be in tune with my comfort index and where I'm going? That is in... I live, in, I live in the world like you do and I have, uh, deal with the struggles and the issues of life and the people I deal with, I sense a complete compromise across the board on the validity of the scriptures and my willingness to obey the scriptures. I don't know who said it and I don't want to know who said it because I'm, I'm not after you as an individual, but could we put this body of sin under uh, legalism, somebody said, and it always fires me off because we're so concerned about how zealous we are that we want to say legalism is the big villain over here and I'm going to talk about that the third session some with you and I'm not down what you said let me develop my argument when I get there but what about the guys that are totally compromising the word of God as Walt pointed out to me one time we are having women elders serving grape juice for communion but the Bible says nothing about serving wine for communion, but it says a lot about women being elders. So we have chosen that women can be the elders, but we will not serve wine at the sacrament. And I can give you these dichotomies, these contradictions, over and over again, they're all good, because what we decided is we are the final judge of truth. We are the final judges of what is right and wrong. And in that process, the Bible stands always subservient to my reason. The revelation is always subservient. So what I want to do for the three sessions I'm with you is I want to challenge you to where you are on obeying the Word of God. Are you committed to it? Should you be committed to it? Can you bank your life on it? And if you're going to do it, how do you approach it? There's no way I can exhaust this subject, guys. It's too big a subject to exhaust. Uh, let me suggest to you that there is uh, a, a significant demand that if I have reached you that you must be engaged in follow on and begin to become men of the word of God it is not a singular event I will not strike such profound statements that you'll say well I've got this thing made it's a lifetime commitment to the pursuit of becoming man's word, uh, God's man in the word 
And so as we climb on those airplanes and fly out of here Sunday, leaving the broken glass behind us, the challenge to all of you is to take on the commitment that I will commit, not next week or next month, but the entire rest of my life to the process of becoming God's man in the Word. It is not a singular event. It's not a singular study. It's not a singular booklet. It's a lifetime of commitment what you need to commit to. So my objective is to bring into focus why we should be men of the Word of God, to bring into focus what you can commit yourself to, and to start to challenge you on how you view the Bible. That's my three sessions, okay? Because it scares me to death when I see events like this. And these are men that are and men and women that I've discussed the stories of godly people that committed their life to serving God, and they got themselves upside down. Why should we obey the Bible? Why should we be men of obedience? I need some help. Who can, who'll read for me? Um, see my head and hand? First Peter five. First Peter five. First Peter one five through eleven. Excuse me, I couldn't get my words. Good day. And somebody already look up ahead. <coughs> First Corinthians three eleven through fifteen. And Ron, did you get on that? What? Why should we obey the scriptures? What is it in it? For me, what, what's in the deal? God, if I stick to your word, is that a good deal? Do I, do I turn out to be a better deal? For instance, why do we buy all the self-improvement books? Because we believe the guy's got a little key that I can put it in my ingredient. If I turn it out, it's, I'm a better guy for this deal. What is the commitment God has with you if you obey the Scripture? Now, First Peter 1, 5-11 describes a process, and we all know that we're in the business of a process of life. And it just, am I too low or what? Okay, I'm with you. Uh, it's a, a process of life. So what let's do is let's read First Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And what I want you to look at is what the process is. And if you hadn't opened your, your Bible, do it right now. Bill, get that Bible open. Who else had done that? <laughs> Be with me on this verse and... and Go through, as Dave reads that scripture, what he's saying about the process and be looking at what the commitment God is making on the backside of this process. Are you with me? Strike out, Dave. Let's go. 1 Peter 1, 5 to 11. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is Nope, you're in the wrong verse. 1 Peter... Uh, excuse me, Second Peter. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Second All Peter. Right. All right. <laughs> I would read the same thing he was here. Yeah, Second Peter. Right there's the two. Why didn't you see that? <laughs> I saw it. What's wrong with you, Doctor Dave? God forgive Dave for reading the wrong verse. Well, let's go ahead. Second Peter Gail, one five three. Uh, how how well I was at re reading roadmaps yesterday. All right, let's so, go. Okay. First Peter two five to eleven. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. 
For if you do these things, you will never fall. You will, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, guys, these verses deserve some consideration. As a matter of fact, I'd encourage you to make this a life verse for yourself. This verse deserves lots of thought. But let's just go through it. It says, add to my faith, what? What? Come on, guys. Add to my faith, goodness. I'm going to write the word goodness. I heard that. Goodness. And to my goodness, to knowledge. And to my knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, or kindness, brotherly kindness, it's really filio, brotherly love or brotherly kindness. And brotherly kindness, love. And that's, of course, agape. So it talks about a process in our life. Faith, we have faith in Jesus Christ and we launch on this process. And we add and continue add to the process of adding to that goodness, responding to our goodness, adding knowledge into the knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance. Not analyzing in a total, but we'll note that the process ends at love. And Walt said at the beginning, uh, yesterday, today, excuse me, the two things you can always have to give away, one of them is love. And how do we become men of love? By sitting around and emotionally saying, mm, I love, I love, I love, I love. Well, I just, I care about you, I care about you, I care about you. How do you gain love like God wants you to have? How does he do it, Bill? You get it from him. Yes, but how do you do that? Do you just sit here and say, pour it on me because I'm going to love everybody around me? Huh? The scripture prescribes that you, in the process of obedience, in the process of incorporating the word, in the process of throwing yourself in the high risk of obeying his word, that's what the prescription in the Bible is. It's not sitting around and meditating yourself into a love affair with, with man. It says, I transact my life, I give myself to obedience, that love comes out, the Holy Spirit gives it to me, it's the fruit of the Spirit, but I just don't sit around and God just pours the love down on me and then I pour it out on everybody else. How do you know you love God? Yeah. Is it because I say, I love you, God, I love you, I love you? He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. How do you want to know and love God? Just by a lot of hard thinking? No, it's transacting his commands into your life. It's a process he's called you to. And if you want to be a person of love, you take your faith and take it through the process that that begins to come out of you. All right? Well, what are these three right here described? Knowledge, self-control, and perseverance. What do you think that describes? What is knowledge? No trick question. That's not a trick question. What? Learning. Learning. Okay. But it's a knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge of Christ. The Word speaks about an intimate relationship. It's an intimate knowledge of God. And, of course, you're doing that. You go back to the John 14, 21 verse. And what you begin to see is what he means is I have an intimacy with the Scripture. And it becomes a part of me. It's a breathing of his word inside. So you must have the input of the word. 
The second thing he picked up was what? What was the second attribute? I add to my knowledge. What do you think he picks that for? What would that follow? Well, our behavior has to perform what we know. Right? You've got to take the word and let it run your life, and you must discipline yourself to do it. Two things I like to observe for you guys. Bible study is not to make you smarter sinners. <laughs> you got that in mind? Bible study is to change your life. And to change my life, I must take the word and get my body disciplined to do what it tells me to do. Second observation I want to make you. In our society, we are playing down the value of self-control and self-discipline. Guys, a fundamental cornerstone of the Christian walk is one who is disciplined. And let me say to you, I see some guys almost as old as I am, see guys young. If you don't practice and learn discipline in your youth, when you get my age, you can check it out. It ain't going to happen. The Spirit gives you self-control. But once you learn the Word, you must act upon it. You can't sit around and say, look what I know. Knowledge is not just to know, it is to put into action. And self-control is the form of application. Would you agree with me? That's what he's teaching you there. Therefore, you have self-control. Now, the next word is endurance. What else? Perseverance. What did he pick that word for? What's the word mean? What's the word mean? It's a struggle. you got to overcome it. Okay. It's a struggle. What else? Email. What else does it mean? Keep at it. Good. Stick to it. Good. All great words. Now, we can persevere in numerous different ways, but this is a beautiful word. I'm, you really got to grasp this word. You, to, you need to go back in the Greek and look at this word. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's really easy to get to these words and understand a word like what he's trying to say here in perseverance. Now, I can persevere a couple of ways. One of them, I can be driving home this weekend and have a car accident and become a paraplegic. And I can sit in my bed and persevere by saying, I will to do the most with what I've got left, but there's nothing I can do about what i got. I've got to live with it. Well, there's another form of perseverance that says I choose to stay the course, but I do have an option to get out. Isn't that true? Are you with me on this? Are those different kinds of perseverance? This word persevere means I choose to stay the course even though I have an option to get out. And the word is a picture of a man putting his back under a load and holding the load, realizing he can walk away from it anytime he wanted to. You grasp the picture he's describing for you. Pull in the Word, discipline your life, and choose to stay the course. Choose to stay the course. And only by the powering of the Holy Spirit can you stay the course. But it is your choice. Here's the great news. God lets you on the train. God lets you ride the train. God lets you get off the train. Now, He's going to call you up for review later on that choice. But you do get to move around on it. So application is taking in the Word, disciplining your life, and persevering. Because when you obey the commands of God, will everything go beautiful for you at the business? Will everybody say, Whoa, what a wonderful life. Gosh, I wish I'd thought of that. Boy, I'm really glad you're one of the most honest guys in the world because I, I'm just going to be honest with you. Is that how it goes, guys? Or will you be an alien in an exile? Will you be a stranger in the world? Will you get bumped around? Will you get your head beat in? Will you be kept? The answer is yes. But if you have the truth, 
If you believe you had a hold of God's word, then you are compelled to stay the course. You are compelled to persevere. Are you with me? Application is knowledge, followed by self-control, followed by the willingness to choose to stay the course. And the product is love. What? Great process. That verse is well worth a lot more study, but let me not go into it anymore. Let me just state, how many, who, who can quote 1 Corinthians 13 to me? 13, 13. Yes. Okay. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these are love. The hope is what motivates you to stay the process. It begins with faith, hope is the motivation, and the end of the road is love. Now what else did he promise us? He promised us that the product of obedience is love. What else did he promise us? Somebody read, uh, Dave, would you read it again? Let's go down below love and read this. Says, For if you do these in increasing measure, what does it say? Okay, if you do these in increasing measure, what's that mean, guys? What's he say? What's he say, Don? Stay the course, stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. Stay in there. Go, go. I know you're tired, I know you're hurting. Go, stay the course. You're on the right track. Don't back off. Go. Keep going. Here's the contract, guys. Stay the course. Obey the word. Love will come out of your product. Walt has just noted to you very wisely that the two things that the world is beating at doorsteps to get is servanthood and love that they can't get enough of. But he promises you your life will count. How many of you, honestly, you no, no raising of hands, have ever said to yourself, I am busting my chops and I don't know if it means I kill a bean. I look at that bank account and I have busted my family working. Where in the heck am I going? I've given myself to these people and they don't give a flip. You may have gone through stuff like that? I have. And most of the men I know in intimacy have. They don't know if it's counting. God, God commits to you that this path will be not barren nor unfruitful. It will matter that you were here. That's a pretty nice promise. Go to the bank with that one, guys. Your life is going to count. What else did he promise? That you can be sure you're saved. That's, that's really for another kind of talk, but let me say to you, one of the things I struggle, I've got to revisit every now and then. <laughs> one of yours, guys, and the assurance is my willingness to stay the course. I will not stumble. Am I making glorious, grand errors in my life? Or am I really on the right course? This year, I had a major contract that got away from me. And I remember in my quiet time, I was reading about David. Help me, Walt. Uh, who, was the, who was the guy? The Nabal. He owned a vineyard. And David says, send his guys up here. You remember the story? And he said to Nabal, uh, Nabal, let us come eat in your vineyards. We're hungry. We've been guarding your vineyards all this time. 
And Nabal said in the early Jewish tradition, hanging on your beak, don't get into my vineyard. They're mine. So David responded like he always did. Out came the sword. He said, let's go and kill him. We're not going to mess around with the guy. Nabal's wife comes out. Do you remember that? She persuades him, don't do that. Don't, because Nabal is a, a man of folly. Don't go up there and kill him. And David's response I thought was great. David said, thank you for this. And God, thank you because you have kept me from evil. And when I read that, I thought about this contract, and I realized a lot of things that we could never have executed this contract. But more importantly, my mind flashed back across my life, and I said, God, right here, you kept me from committing evil that would have damaged me the rest of my life. And right here, God, this, this involvement with this woman, oh my gosh, God, oh my gosh, you, you kept me away from that. And, and God, here, oh my Lord, I was going to steal that money. Oh God, the shivers go down my back. You, you inhibited me from doing it. You moved in my life and stopped me from doing that evil. And I went through my life and could point where the evil was. And I was headed for it with full speed. And God reached down and tweaked me. Because that's a true story. And he said that you will not stumble. I will see you. I will work with you to protect you from evil that's going to damage you and yours. And I will get a grand entrance into heaven. Not a bad deal. Not a bad deal. Is it worth obeying the scriptures? We learned a little bit about what obedience was. The product and the commitment is very significant. Okay, uh, Ron, Ron, let's read the next one. First Peter, <laughs> I'm going to get First Peter in. It's coming. First Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. Uh, you, Lynn, would you give me some hot tea, please? Okay, stick with me now, Ron. Keep your finger on the verse. Question one. Was this, was this scripture in Corinthians written to believers or non-believers? Believers. Is it talking about a believer's judgment or a non-believer's judgment? A believer's judgment. Are you with me, everybody? He's talking about us. We've now lived our life. We will go to a judgment. It is properly called the Bema Seat Judgment. Thank you, sir. It is in popular phraseology, it is called the Bema Seat Judgment. He is describing what you and I will do, what we will go through. Now remember I said, here's the good news, Mike, you get to make the decision. Here's the bad news, Mike, he's going to review your decision. We get to, we, as men of God, we're empowered with the Holy Spirit, we get to decide a great deal about how we execute our life. That's the good news. The bad news is we get to review all those decisions. And it's at this judgment seat. So he is talking to the believer. What is the day he's talking about? What is the day he's talking about, Ron? The, the, the date of death. He's talking about our judgment, the Bema Seat judgment of believers. Now, I want you to read when you get down below that, where the day will reveal. Begin to read from there, Ron. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work it's done. All right. 
Go, go back up. I'm sorry. I want you to go back up a couple of verses before that. If any man's work survives. Keep going. Go on. What will he receive? Keep going. All right. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved only as the fire. Okay. This is the picture, guys. A bomb falls in this building. We're all wiped out. We're all up in heaven now. And when you find beside yourself a bag with all the decisions and the works of your life. And it is works is what he's referencing. You throw those up on your shoulder and you move towards the conveyor belt of God. And there's this big conveyor belt and God's sitting on the other side and you plop your works on the conveyor belt. You run to the other side of the furnace to see what comes out because it's going to pass in the furnace. And whatever survives, you receive a, a reward, a reward. And if nothing survives, you have suffered. What's the word he uses? Great loss. Great loss. Now, guys, this test is called making an ash of yourself. <laughs> look at the words. Look at the words he uses. Great reward. Look at the word he uses, not Gail Jackson uses. Great loss. And a loss in eternity. Is it important to obey, guys? It's the difference between reward and loss. Will he lose his salvation? Ron, does, what does it say? The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. As through fire. We're not going to lose our salvation, but we're losing the reward in heaven, and we will suffer loss. Is it important to obey the commandments of God? Guys, I think there's an overwhelming argument that it is critically important in the Scriptures that we be men of obedience. Okay? I got by with it. They're not going to ask. Why obey? Because it's been modeled. Because it is in your best interest to obey. I have a life that will be full of fruit and meaningful. I will not stumble. I will be received in heaven with trumpets and yeah, yeah, here's Gail. I'm going to go through the valley of ash and come out with rewards. It is in my best interest. Fruitful thought. If I could get the American people to obey just the Ten Commandments, I would eliminate the national debt. Well, it's good. That's all it would take. It's all it would take. A simple transaction. Let's just obey the Ten Commandments and we'll, we'll resolve the national debt. Is it in your best interest? Yes, it is. Is it in your best interest? If I'm going to pursue a relationship to God, God says what's in it for you is intimacy with Him. How do I gain intimacy? By deep meditation. The prescription in the Scripture is, He who has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me, and He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love Him and do what? Manifest myself to him. You want to know God? Obey God. 
The prescription is a life of obedience brings you intimacy with God. Not a life of going to retreats. Not a life of going to church and listening to messages. Not a life of listening to tapes. You want to know how to know God in intimacy? It's obeying Him. Taking in the Word, self-control, and perseverance. Applying the Word. And grace demands it. Grace of Jesus Christ, grace of God in your salvation demands that you obey the Word. In 1 John it says, He who says he loves me but disobeys my word is a liar. Now that's a fairly harsh observation. Is it worth your while? It is compellingly worth your while to obey the word of God. What is obedience? And I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me say to you, if you drop down in here, it means to hear attentively to be absorbed with the Word, to give yourself to the Word. It's more than rote obedience. It's commitment. It's total commitment to the instruction. We're wandering around. Why are we wandering around? What did I do wrong? Oh, okay. All right. That obedience, see, Webster says, the Webster says that obedience is to hear a command and go do it. Not even to hear, but just to obey the commands of your leader. But obedience in the Scripture is a much deeper thing. It's attentive. It's attentive listening. It's giving an ear to. It's commitment. It's discernment. The word means a great deal more. The question we've got to ask ourselves, I asked this recently to a group I taught this to, there's really four, five ways you can be. You could grade yourself that you're obedient and know the word of God. And praise God that we all would be that way. You could say that I am disobedient and know the word of God like my three illustrations. You could say, I do not know if I'm obedient, and I do not know the Word of God. Or you could say, I would like to be number one, but I'm really number three. Or you could say, I really don't even care. I don't think it means a hill of beans. Now guys, I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm simply stating the Scripture clearly notes to you that it is worth your life to obey the Scripture with reckless abandon, risking the whole caboodle. Why do we flounder? Why don't we just take it off and rip? One reason is that we believe obedience is a lifestyle which is defined by a comfortable distance from the standards of the world. Let me illustrate that for you. I came to Christ. I beg your pardon? No, because you would hold me accountable for what I said. <laughs> you think I'm a fool? <laughs> Keep moving. You're on tape. Oh, God. When I came to Christ, I was committed to smoking, drinking. Uh, I had a lot of wonderful, cute habits. All right? So I came to Christ, and Christ put a lot of heavy load on me about through conviction that I ought to stop smoking. I immediately stopped smoking one year later. I was very responsive to the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And so I had taken myself out of the gutter and gotten two inches above the gutter, and I looked back to say, oh, how unholy they are. 
<laughs> is that true? Is the laughter a nervous laugh that you've been there, guys? Let me tell you why we don't obey. Because we think that is righteousness. That's not righteousness, men. Righteousness is us comparing ourselves to God's standard. Are you with me on that? You're barely crawled up out of the gutter. Remember, you're never that far from your depravity. The rescue of grace does not take you away from the capacity to sin. We believe that we that obedience is a lifestyle which is defined by a comfortable distance, and so therefore, I've learned two new commands, and I am I'm swinging and winging, and everybody else looks dirty around me. Undoubtedly, I have conquered obedience. Obedience is a lifetime commitment. We are ignorant of the word. We misunderstand the word. We don't. We just run from fad to fad. We don't get into the scriptures. We're misled on the truth. We're fad followers. We're tradition secure. It's interesting to me to see. I've been a Christian 25 years. I can name you four or five fads that came down Christian's road that this is the new one, boys. Let's all go follow it. There's where the truth is. About five years later, he faded out. Don't get me wrong. These were good men. These are good men. But you know what? Nobody thought for themselves. Do you remember the verse he quoted to you yesterday on Acts 17.11? Anybody, can anybody quote Acts 17.11? Verse you must memorize. Acts 17.11. For the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Those of Cleveland were more noble than the guys from Atlanta. For receiving the word eagerly. How are you to receive the word? They searched the scripture to see if what was said was true. Guys, I want to tell you something. Don't take what I said as the answer. You go search the scripture. And then if it's true, obey it. Because when you go to heaven and God's going to say to you, Brett, what did you do this? He said, well, Gail taught it. He'll say, what's a rock? He turns into a Chinaman at that time. That ain't going to buy much at the, at the Bema seat. And he's going to say, well, Walt did it. Walt said it. And he'll say, yippee-taw. Don't be wrong. Walt is accountable. But you're accountable irrespective of what Walt taught you. Are you with me on that? And if you're not men of Acts 17.11, you are fools. You should search the Scripture to see if what was said the truth. The only true standard is what the Scripture says. It's not our standard. So don't be a fad follower. So that's what we do. In Atlanta, there's churches that grow up and they become popular churches. So there's a group of about 200 people run over and join that church and it grows. And then another church, oh, that's exciting. They're going to join that. And I've watched this for years. And they just kind of move around from church to church. And these are all good things. There's not that. But the issue is they're not anchoring down in the Word. They're chasing a fad. They're chasing a quick solution that's not there. And purposeful ignorance of God's teaching. Some of us just don't want to know the dumb truth. Because if I know it, it may cut back on some of the things I think are important to me. But that comes back to the fact that you really don't believe that obeying the Word of God is in your best interest. I'm submitting to you guys, it is worth chunking everything to chase. I mean, throw every standard out and, and put on the seat, seat belt and get after it. It's a lifetime commitment. Three, if we believe that if we are too rigorous in our obedience, that we're being legalistic. We are, we're just being too rigorous. Let me suggest to you something. Jesus Christ never got on anybody's back for being zealous, ever in the Scripture. 
Never. I'll tell you what he did get on somebody's back about is when you told me your zealousness was his standard. Did you understand what I said? For instance, the scripture does not condemn smoking in the Bible. That is a personal conviction of Gail Jackson. But the minute I tell you, Brett, you can't smoke, I have now become legalistic because my righteous standards became yours. The only standard you and I share that I can hold you accountable for is the Bible, not my personal conviction. Zealousness is called upon. Oh, praise God, we've had more guys zealous, more rigorous commitment, more rigorous application. Legalism only comes when I force my righteous standards on you. Now, do I have a right to say to you don't commit adultery? What do you think, Bill? Sure. But even any idiot can figure out you're breaking the commandment on that deal. That's not a conviction. That's a commandment. Are you with me on that? But that's not what I'm talking about. Conviction, excuse me, legalism comes out of conviction. Where the lines are, I draw around my life on what I'm going to do and not do. So we say, well, we're too rigorous. I don't want to be too rigorous. This is God loves me. This is grace. It feels so good and warm. Oh, this is so good. I feel so cuddly. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is commitment. It's living in the world. It's hurting. It is persevering. It's taking God at his word and moving forward. Sure, he loves you. But grace calls upon commitment. It doesn't suggest it. It calls upon it, guys. This is not a suggestion. This is a commandment. Obedience eliminates options. That's another reason we don't like to do it. I heard Walt use an illustration recently. I jumped all over about the bungee card guy. Let me tell you something why we don't. One thing we try very hard in our life and that is to keep a lot of options open on everything. Do you agree? My teenage kids, what are you going to do this weekend? I asked them. Oh, no, no. What's well, Monday? Well, oh, you got nothing planned. Well, I got two or three deals, but I haven't decided yet. Wednesday. What are you going to do this weekend? I don't know. Well, you got anything? Well, I got four or five things, but I just haven't decided. What are you waiting on? They won't answer me. You know what they're waiting on? What's the best deal on Friday? Keep all the options open to the last minute. Cut four, go with one. Is that right? Yes, sir. And you do the same thing in your life. And I'm going to tell you, obedience eliminates options. The minute I commit to obedience, I eliminate my options. I up my dependence because what I believe on better be, better be right. All right? And when I up my dependence, I test the quality of my truth system, and that's scary like the guy on the bungee cart. I'm on the top of the bridge. I'm looking around. They tie the bungee cart on my leg. I'm walking around. I've got all the options in the world. I can take the cord off. I can walk away. Do anything I want to. I'm walking up and down and I decide to jump. And when I throw my body off that bridge, I ain't got no more options. I'm sailing at breakneck speed through the air, praying like mad that that cord's good. My elimination of options, my commitment Eliminated options, up my dependence, and tested the quality of what I depended on. And I hit into that cord and I said, praise God, it is. Here's God's deal. No matter what the world tells you, what all that junk is they're throwing at you, throw it away, put my cord on your ankles, and jump off the bridge. Because I am truth. I am the way. I am life. Depend on me. No, you can't see the beginning from the end, but I promise you what I'm telling you is true. It is worth the commitment. And when you hit the end of the cord, it's good. Now, guys, I'm 57. 
I can feel the cord coming to an end. Pretty soon I'm going to know how true it is. Back home, we have a mutual friend whose wife just died of cancer. She knows how good it is. She just went right through heaven. She's there now. And it's a lifetime commitment on a leap off a bridge. And it eliminates all your options. Because there's only one true system. And you can't live a double life. I tell you, God, I'll, I'll obey you with my family, but not with my business. Because God, you're a great God. You're a very smart God, but you really don't know a lot about business. God, you've got a great set of standards, but they're just not quite high enough for me. You can't mix the metaphor, guys. It's a full-time commitment. And we struggle with the fact that God's revelation is smarter, wiser, and more preeminent than anything I can reason. That's why you don't obey, because you think your reasoning is better than God's revelation. And if the world reason it out, that's got to be better than what... That's what that guy said to me. That's what that priest said. That guy said, look, I know the Bible says homosexuals don't belong in the pastor, but... Boy, they have so much to offer. This guy has a lot to offer. My reasoning is greater than God's revelation. And God wouldn't do that. That's not fair. I won't get into that. And the last reason you wouldn't obey is because you're simply not a believer. You know, he says he loves God and does not obey his word. is a liar. Guys, it is worth you obeying the word. There's five, uh, five affirmations. God is has the right. Here's five affirmations you need to think on. God has the right to command me in my life. Does he? Does he have the right? He's a God of the universe. He perpetrates truth and he's committed to your best interest. Does he have a right? Absolutely. I have not a choice. I have not a desire. I have not uh, a Let us be men who depend upon you. Let the rest of the conference be pleasing to you. Let us have our time off to rest our bodies and our spirits and let us be uh, men who talk about you and grow closer to you. Let this weekend move in us. Let the Holy Spirit move in us. Let us have a nice meal now, God, and let us be more thoughtful and mindful of our community. And God, above everything else, we'd really like it if Jesus had come back now, God. We'd like to just go on and be to heaven and get on with this. Be with our families in our absence. Amen.